Welcome to the worship and work of Northminster Church. The work of the church uh, will be the focus this evening at a business meeting, 7 o'clock, and that will be preceded by a potluck supper, but this may not be what you're used to. Instead of a Zoom supper where you watch each other eat, <laughs> we're going to actually sit down and eat, right? We'll still be able to watch each other, but from face-to-face, person-to-person. We hope you'll be here for both events. If you are here, you're probably looking for something a little different in a church. Maybe a church that's not exactly like the other churches in this area. Maybe more like tradition with a twist. Or a traditional church for non-traditional people. Okay, so we're different, all right? But we think that different is good. That kind of different is distinctive. A distinctive kind of openness. A distinctive kind of inclusion. A distinctive kind of social mission. So let us worship together. The God who accepts us just as we are, different as we are. Let us worship the Lord. We're here to worship in the fel- our fellowship, God in our fellowship. Our souls thirst for God. Our hearts faint in times such as these, a seeming dry and weary land where there is no water. With the psalmist and Jesus on the cross, we echo the words being sung around the world today. The prophet reminds us that God's ways are not our ways, and God's thoughts are not the same as our thoughts. Yes, God never forsakes us. When the world around us seems to be falling apart, God is there with the power to rescue and to heal, to reform us. God, help us today with your wondrous, mysterious love. Amen.
from the book of Isaiah. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. Also, you that have no money, come, buy, and eat. Why spend your money on what is not bread, your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in rich food. Pay attention to me, come to me, and listen, so that you may live. Then I will make an everlasting covenant with you, as I promised by my faithful, sure love for David. Look, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Look. You will call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that does not know you will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek God while you may. Call upon God in the time that God is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to God. Have mercy on them. Our God will abundantly pardon, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says my God. For as the heavens surpass the earth, so, may way, so my ways surpass your ways, and my thoughts surpass your thoughts. The word of the Lord.
Scripture reminds us to pray without ceasing and for a war which seems to be relentless and unceasing. We pray for that war to cease. You'll see in your bulletin you have uh, a prayer for Ukraine. This we will pray today in unison, but we've made it in such a way that you can keep this with you and pray without ceasing for those who are caught in the brutal jaws of war. It is a word from our hearts to the heart of God about the people in Ukraine. On the back side, you'll find a word from Ukraine to our hearts. We will hear those words sung as we pray to the Lord a prayer for Ukraine. God of peace and justice, we pray for the people of Ukraine today. We pray for peace and the laying down of weapons. We pray for all those who fear for tomorrow, that your spirit of comfort would draw near to them. We pray for those with power over war or peace, for wisdom, discernment, and compassion to guide their decisions. Above all, we pray for all your precious children at risk and in fear, that you would hold and protect them. We pray in the name of Jesus, Prince of Peace. Amen. gospel according to Luke, the 13th chapter, verses 1 through 9. 
At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Are those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were the worst offenders, worse than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. And then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none, cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, leave it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The Gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the characteristics of Northminster Church I love is the way you can bring your questions and doubts with you when you come here. You don't need to have all the answers signed, sealed, and delivered before you're accepted. And that's good because we don't have all the answers. We don't even have all the questions, which is why we welcome your questions and doubts. In fact, you might not want to let this out, but you can bring your brain to church here. <laughs> you will find no orthodoxy check. Our only creed is the Word of God, and the Word of God doesn't mean here what it might mean in other places, the places, you know, that say, the Word of God. <laughs> that stilted, sonorous tone. They mean a verbal, plenary, literal words of God in a leather-bound book. They believe the Bible is literally true. It's like the old college joke about the definition of a lecture, whereby the yellowing notes of the professor are transferred into the fresh notebook of the student without going through the mind of either. <laughs> no. We believe the Bible is a living reality. It's not limited to the written words of Scripture. The Word is the Spirit of God communicating with us through the words of our world. Not literally true, but literarily true. True. Living and true. The Word of God speaks to us through the Bible, through literature, through the wisdom of the cultures of the world, through history, tradition, and experience. And in the free church tradition, 
Each individual is responsible to hear and interpret this multifarious means of God speaking to us in the world. So we come to the gospel lesson this morning, and it raises some of those pesky kinds of questions and doubts we dare to allow. It's the kind of questions that in the Christian faith, some would discourage, dismiss, deflect, or disdain. Surrounded by the 12 and a crowd of seekers, the question arises, how can God be so good if the world is so bad? Two case studies are presented. First, a group of Galileans were slaughtered while performing a ritual sacrifice. Political and military murder of innocents seems to be an age-old issue. Human evil is illustrated in this first case, and a second study is the occurrence of natural evil. A structure known as Salome's Tower collapsed and killed 18 people. We didn't have questions when we came today. We have them now. How can a good, all-powerful God allow human and natural evil? Such is the purview of literature, and we find that question most deeply dealt with in literature. Arguably, the most poignant treatment of the question is in the novel The Bridge of St. Louis Ray by Thornton Wilder, you know, the Our Town guy. The novel begins with one of the most intriguing opening sentences in all of literature. On Friday afternoon, July the 20th, 1714, the finest bridge in all Peru broke and precipitated five travelers into the gulf below. A red-haired Franciscan monk by the name of Brother Juniper had been sent to convert the natives, and he witnessed this tragic event, five lives lost in an instant. And Brother Juniper could not shake the questions arising from the collapse of the bridge. Why these five? Why was he only ten minutes away from being on that ill-fated bridge himself? So Brother Juniper tracks down the background of each victim. What did they do to deserve their fate? And after exhaustive efforts, he concludes that they were no more deserving of destruction than most anyone else. He then turns to a total accidental explanation of the catastrophe. Maybe the bridge was poorly constructed or the weather conditions treacherous. No, remember it was the finest bridge in Peru. The weather was not a factor. He is then convinced that a good God let such bad happen. He vows to continue questioning the role of God and the misery of the world, but declares that all we can say now is that it is a mystery. Well, the church authorities reward his diligent quest for answers. They reward it by arresting him, charging him with heresy for questioning God's will, and after a quick ecclesiastical trial, burning Brother Juniper at the stake. 
That's why I love a place like Northminster. That's why I need a place like Northminster. The only burning at the stake around here is the burning of easy answers. Bring your hard questions here and you'll be in good company. Not just in the company of this community, but the company of God's people throughout Scripture. For the cry of why echoes down from the garden to the golden throne. I mean, why give us a garden with everything, including a trap door to the ouster? The anthropomorphic images of God in the Old Testament picture a God a lot more like us than we comfortably accept. God gets angry, vengeful, bitter, hateful, downright brutal. Monotheism has that inherent problem of explaining how one good God could create a world where so much is wrong. Now, if we only had a couple of gods, okay? One good God, one bad God, that would explain the pain. And there are dualistic religions that do that and posit a good God battling a bad God. Judeo-Christian theology makes us do with one good God. Well, except those Christians who empower Satan or the devil to do the bad stuff. Creeping dualism has no place in this Judeo-Christian tradition. You can't say the devil made me do it. For you old people, I could have said the devil made me wear this dress and you would know exactly what I meant. As hard as it is to do so, we're stuck with one God who we believe is good. Thank goodness for the multitude of spiritual references to God's goodness. Moses cries out to God who has seemingly deserted Israel in the desert, but God gets them through and gets them there eventually, dusty, weary, but there. The book of Job presents the problem of God's character in the form of a drama. Job is righteous and yet loses everything he loves. And Job's response vacillates between whimpers and screams. He calls on God to answer him in his question, why? And then God makes an appearance in the drama at the denouement. And surprisingly, God's appearance is not to comfort Job, but to remind him of his mortal limitations. God makes quite an appearance, dramatic, one might say. Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, God says, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? Or what were his bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone with the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of the deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Job can only acquiesce and bow before the majesty of of God. When God questions our questions, we encounter the excruciating mystery of God. The agony of questioning God may be most graphically displayed in the Psalms. 
Over and over, the psalmist laments the God who appears silent or uncaring. In fact, an entire genre of psalms is known as the psalms of lament because they call on a God they know to be good, but whose goodness is not apparent in their experience. The culmination of the questioning of God's goodness in the psalms is reached at the cross. There, Jesus quotes the psalms, crying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That anguished utterance resounds in our ears when we meet life's agony without divine answer or remedy. To me, as I said before, it's in literature where I struggle with these ideas and images especially in poetry, such as this one called Questions for God. It's by Raphael Campo. Why does the moon seem so intent to cry, and yet it is your tears that give us the dew? Why do the flags grasp silently at wind? Why does the sun refuse to let me stare, and yet it is your hand upon my face that burns? Why does my mother die without remembering my name while she still sings in church? Why does the IV bag float like my prayer does in this emptiness? Where was it that I lost my way? Why do I see the cross and window panes and two down branches broken in the road and shirts hung out to dry? Why does the mystery of faith sustain us when we keep on asking such questions? Why must we ask such questions? The mystery of faith does sustain us as we ask, especially as we ask. It's God's nature to be on the receiving end just like it's our nature to question. Richard Everhart deals with it in his poem, The Fury of the Aerial Bombardment. Think about prayers coming up from earth. You would think the fury of aerial bombardment would rouse God to relent. The infinite spaces are still silent. He looks on shock pride faces. History even does not know what is meant. You would feel that after so many centuries, God would give man to repent, yet he can kill as Cain could, but with multitudinous will, no farther advanced than in his ancient furies. Was man made stupid to see his own stupidity? Is God, by definition, indifferent beyond us all? Is the eternal truth man's fighting soul wherein the beast ravens in its own avidity? Human beings can listen to God's silence or they can heed the call of the beast within which devours others as eagerly as it devours itself. Will that silence ever be broken? Will our heart-wrenching questions ever be answered? Emily Dickinson portrays that moment of questions being answered like this. I shall know why when time is over, and I have ceased to wonder why. Christ will explain each separate anguish in the fair schoolroom of the sky. He will tell me what Peter promised, and I, for wonder at his woe, I shall forget the drop of anguish that scalds me now, that scalds me now. 
We are scalded by that drop of anguish now, tortured by questions which have no easy answers. Somehow a God of love must allow choice to be made or otherwise love would not be love. If we did not have the choice whether to love God or each other, then love would not be love but the act of a robotic automaton. I believe God's ultimate will for the world is peace, love, and justice. And our decisions are real. And yet each decision carries us closer to God's ultimate destination. Our misguided decisions can somehow be transformed and remediated and perfected into cosmic resolution. Well, Jesus' answer to that question that day doesn't seem to help us much. Go back to the text in your mind. To those problems, all he says is repent. And then he tells us a parable about repenting. Now, I really don't know what to do with the image of God putting more manure on us so that we will grow. <laughs> Although, we want to say to the crowd, did he misunderstand the question? Maybe not. Maybe the best answer to these perplexing questions is precisely what Jesus says. God is good because God gives us time to turn our lives around by turning to God. That is God's love at work in our world. What about our questions and our doubts? The most we can know is that God's goodness is a mystery and that somehow love is the key. Jurgen Moltmann in his book, The Crucified God, relates the story of that most, that cruelest of times in World War II. A young Jewish boy of 12 was being hanged by the Nazis for some minor offense. The Nazi commandant scoffed at the Jews who were forcibly gathered to witness the execution. Where is your God now? The Nazi commandant declared. God is there, one of the Jews said, on the gallows. God's sacrificial love is the closest we can come to the mystery. So if you want all the answers nailed down and codified, you've come to the wrong place. For us, the answers are not nailed down, but nailed to a cross. Not fixed in a code, but wrapped in a mystery called resurrection. So if you want to live the questions with only love to hold on to and to hold on to you, You've come to the right place. The last sentence of the bridge of the San Louis Ray is just as poignant as the first. The mother superior of the local convent muses on the events surrounding the bridge collapse, and she says, There is a land of the living and a land of the dead, and the bridge is love, the only survival, the only meaning. The mystery of God's goodness is above our pay grade. But there is a bridge to the mystery of God's goodness. And that bridge is love. The only survival. The only meaning. Amen.
It's easy to forget God's love in a world like ours. And so God has given us not only an abstract but concrete way to remember. It was Jesus gathered with his disciples that night. As he said, in the taking and breaking of this bread, this is my body, broken for you. And in the same manner after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. All of you, drink of it. In this way, you show God's love, God's sacrificial love, even in a world like ours. Let us pray together the prayer Jesus taught those who followed him to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, 